we're all monsters and and my point is there is no such thing as a template human there is no such thing as a perfect human we all have some peculiarity if we don't have it now we'll have it later Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. So this is the Book Society podcast, the show where we talk to interesting people about interesting books, the books that they love, sometimes the books that they write, in this case both. Our guest today is Professor Andrew Mangum. He is a professor of English literature at the University of Reading. He specializes, and this is fascinating, he specializes in the intersection between literature and medicine. He is the director of the Center for Health and Humanities. He has written several books. We Are All Monsters is the one we're going to talk about today. That is from MIT Press 2023. Came out 10 minutes ago. My copy is still warm. He has written The Science of Starving in Victorian Literature, Medicine, and Political Economy. Another book is Dickens' Forensic Realism, Truth, Bodies, and Evidence, and Violent Women and Sensational Fiction, Crime, Medicine, and the Victorian Popular Fiction. He has written countless papers since 2006, too many to count, but he is prolific, he is brilliant, he is interesting, and he is here to talk about his new book, We Are All Monsters. Please welcome to the podcast, Andrew Mangham. Professor, welcome. Glad to have you. So I'm always fascinated in how academics uh, at your level and in your specialties find these specific specialties. And how, how did you become interested in the world of how where literature intersects with medicine? How did you even? How did this even occur to you? The subject of my PhD was the subject of my first book on the intersections uh, between literature and medicine, on the idea of violent womanhood. And I found when I was looking at the literature and representations of villainesses, women who kill, in literature, in popular literature of the nineteenth century, that the authors were drawing a lot on medical ideas of things like hysteria what happens to the female body at various crucial stages in a woman's life, and so on. And these links between female violence and the female body were very misogynistic, they're very old-fashioned, but in the 19th century they were very powerful. And it was interesting to look at the ways in which they they evolved, how they migrated from science into literature. And so this developed an interest in the ways in which languages, the ways in which ideas change as they begin in medicine and then find their way to be expressed in literature and also go back into medicine because we find a lot of medical writings of the 19th century actually drawing on the literature as well. Mm. So that's where it began really with violent women but sort of evolved into a, a more general interest in the way in which literature and medicine speak to each other. Do you think there's a uh, a point in our history, hopefully in our distant history, where we transitioned from uh, the kinds of medicine where we diagnose women with hysteria, and that explains, you know, uh, any women having any kind of what we would call deviance. Is there a point where we moved away from that pseudoscience into, you know, the science, uh, what we think of as science today, evidence-based science, or have we moved to that point yet? Or are we still sort of narrativizing and pathologizing any ailment we come up with? It's very interesting. I think a lot of feminist scholars will tell you that we've not come far enough. Mm. Um, And certainly when it comes to female bodies, um, a lot of science is conducted by men, and it's conducted in a way that is full of bias and full of a deep-rooted sense that women are both inferior and regularly 
uh, unwell because of their biologies. Um, mm. We've come a long way since then, and feminism is teaching us that actually the female body is a strength uh, and uh, has a lot of things that are unique to it and powerful that male bodies don't necessarily have. But also those essentialisms about what differentiates male from female are already uh, beginning to to be uh, unpacked and, and we're beginning to really question what it is that differentiates one from the other and whether the binaries that have been set up in the past um, are valid anymore. But there's a difference between how we talk about these things in a lay popular way and the way in which we talk about them scientifically, for sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, in a lot of popular discourse, we still have this idea that women are periodically unwell, that they're periodically um, incapable of doing things um, on a monthly basis. And unfortunately, I think that has been used to um, very negative effect. But I think science is developing more progressive ways of thinking about women and their bodies. Do you, do you think that that progressivism is an improvement? I, I don't mean I don't I don't mean to say that it's not. I, I just mean that like the the fact that we're thinking more progressively about women's bodies is that scientifically better than um you know the regressive thoughts that we had uh, in the in the nineteenth century. So like I mean obviously women's like the way we treat women is way better today than it was back then. But um, mm-hmm. are we still um, using more narrative and pseudoscience to um, make decisions, or, or has that improved? I guess that's what I'm asking. I don't know. Um, I, I think. What's worth bearing in mind is that the science of the past um, was very much loaded with preconceived biases and um, a very deep-seated misogyny, mm-hmm. actually. So it's difficult to see how science of the 19th century can be in any way more progressive and more interesting on the subject of female bodies. But um, I think it's interesting the way in which science is used nowadays we're in these conversations and it, it's like the bible right it's it's mined for things that people are looking for and for questions they want to support and um and anyone can find a paper in a journal hidden away that will support um a certain point that they have but i think good progressive objective science um i think science that seeks to be objective will be moving us in a better direction for sure mm. because it will be more accurate the thing about the the science that's full of bias and that is full of um sort of deep-seated hatred of women is that it is not good science it's not objective but we are becoming in, we are entering a world where it's, science has become more objective and therefore it is becoming more accurate and it's becoming fairer so like a Truly great professor, you answered the question would, that I meant to ask, which was, have our biases improved or have um, have our biases gotten better or have they just changed? And um, the answer you gave seems to be that both are true, that we have um, become less prone to biases and maybe those biases have changed, but we are less prone to um, making mistakes based on them today than we were in the 19th century. So to get a little bit more to the subject of your book, what is a monster? It depends in which era, which era we're asking the question. Hmm. So if we're asking in the 19th century, a monster is an organic organism, um, I should say just an organism, which has some form of defect, some structural peculiarity, which is seen as different to the rest of its species. Hmm. Um, it's interesting, the term has very much evolved since then, 
Um, traditionally, the term monster comes from the same root as, as demonstrate, and it was believed to show things. It was believed to demonstrate things. So monsters were thought to um, indicate that something major was going to happen. They were often seen as signs, um, portents that something disastrous was going to happen. There's going to be a natural disaster um, or something like that. In the 19th century, it became much more scientific. They became about these structural peculiarities. But because they r referred to conditions that could often be quite severe, Munster slowly developed the term that we're more likely to apply to it today, which is to see it as some outlandish, horrific creature. Um, mm. And that idea that we have today is very much inspired by Hollywood B-movies. You know, the, the very bold statement of my book, We Are All Monsters, you know, is potentially explosive in, in suggesting that we are all like, you know, the monsters of, of B-movies or gothic literature. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we all have a structural peculiarity, which, judged by the standards of 19th century science and literature, would make us monsters. Mm. We're all monsters. And and my point is that we there is no such thing as a template human. There is no such thing as a perfect human. We all have some peculiarity. If we don't have it now, we'll have it later. And so... Mm. It depends from which era we're asking because the term evolves. I don't know if that makes you agree or disagree with Plato that, um, you know, his idea in a very broad nutshell that there was sort of a template and that is what God's intention was and everybody is a deviation from that template, but you can tell that they're at least from the same template. So I guess by his definition, we are all monsters, but also the, the closer we are to the template, the more perfect we are. I don't know if you would agree with that. Um, I wouldn't agree or disagree. Um, what I can tell you is that in the 19th century, there was a version of that which was called the archetype, um, and it was developed mainly by Richard Owen, who was a great opponent of Darwin's, who mm. said that, you know, there's an archetypal creature, a fish-like creature from which we all have deviated and from which we've all evolved or, or uh, morphed away from in some way. Hmm. It, it's playing with uh, these ideas of, I, I don't believe that there is such a thing as a template. I just think there's variation. I think that hmm. what is normal is variation. I think if nature could speak and we said to her, what is normal? She would say as much variation as you can give me. Basically, <laughs> I love variation. I love difference because that way I can improve. That way I can improve species. Wow. Interesting. To um, change the subject completely. Do you see a similarity between monsters in gothic literature and monsters in Hollywood B-movies as, as an expert in both? Absolutely. There's no difference mm -hmm. between them, really. <laughs> you, you talk about one, you talk about the other. So, yeah, Hollywood B-movies are absolutely inspired by the, the monsters of 19th century mm -hmm. literature. Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, the uh, literature of H.G. Wells, Robert Louis Stevenson, mm -hmm. they all had a massive impact on the very first Hollywood B-movies, the very first, you know, and then we had the sort of Hammer movies in the UK, um, which contribute and drew on all of these classic 19th century monsters. And in many ways, the 19th century was the period for monsters. Mm -hmm. It introduced us to all of the major Gothic players that we have. Um, so absolutely, there's, it's not a case, is there a similarity between the B-movies and Gothic literature? They are the same. 
Wow. Are the, are the, as I'm not as familiar with Gothic literature as maybe I should be, but are the tropes the same where you've got a hero and you know, there's a, maybe a virgin with a heart of gold who needs to be saved and a less virtuous woman who needs to be killed. Are, are these tropes universal? Yeah, it's Gothic literature in a nutshell that you've just given us there. Basically <laughs> it is. I'd say yes, there's um, a naive heroine that needs to be saved, but is who it, who is extraordinarily curious as well. Um, these Gothic heroines are too curious for their own goods and they'll hear a sort of odd growling down in the basement and they can't help but go and investigate. Um, and, you know, the usual tropes, it's a stormy night, uh, the lights go out, um, cutting off the, the sort of communication between the, the, the place, the setting of the horror and, um, and the rest of civilization. You know, mm -hmm. these are all sort of constructed in the Gothic novel, which begins at the, the end of the 18th century, um, mm -hmm. but it's really perfected, I would say, in the, in the late 19th century. Why do you think that simple story and those um, fairly predictable characters are so fascinating and so satisfying? Because as one of the interesting things that I, I know working in Hollywood and um, working, I'm a composer, so I do a lot of movies. And, you know, we, a lot of what we do is cliche and, or trying to put a spin on a cliche and we don't do it because we're lazy. We do it because it works. Um, and I wonder what you think. Do you think it works because there's something about these characters that is universal to all humanity, or is it something about our society, or or is it something deeper or different than that? There are various um, there are various theories about this, and various approaches through Freudian psychoanalysis, which says that they appeal to very deep seated fears and very deep seated phobias that we have, and that we der derive some kind of pleasure through seeing these enacted out, but mm. also seeing them defeated in mm. many ways. There are older ideas than that in that terror brings us to the highest pitch that we are able to feel. Terror is the strongest emotion that humans are capable of. And so there's a sort of pleasure to, do, to be derived from that. But there are also lots of theories which suggest that these stories play out scenarios that we can all empathize with in some way. We might have been bullied. We might be in a controlling relationship. We might have had a sort of controlling, unpleasant parent. Um, and the suggestion is that horror movies are just heightened. They're pantomime versions of stories that have played out in our own time. And mm. so we, we were drawn to them because they, they create, recreate stories from our own periods. Oh, that's, a, that's interesting. I, I know intellectually when I watch like a B movie or like, you know, one of these Marvel offerings that nothing is going to surprise me, but I, but I love them, you know? And, uh, and you know, it's, I, I, I describe in, in uh, in a, something that I'm working on about, uh, just that the, that the goal of a Hollywood movie is to find a creative way for the hero to get the girl. <laughs> You know, and, you know, make, make the audience think that, um, that, that the Hollywood ending is not possible and then, and then have it happen. Yeah, we, we enjoyed the convention. You know, we sit very comfortably sometimes, I think, in those stories, knowing full well that um, Hollywood movies are very much like 19th century novels in mm -hmm. that we, we pretty much know they're going to end in a certain way. We know mm -hmm. mainly they're going to end happily. They're going to end with the guy getting the girl. It's going to end in marriage. Um, or it might end in death and be a very tragic film. But we know to expect 
those two endings. And that's very much the same with the 19th century novel. And I think there's a comfort in that. We're drawn to those scenarios in which, you know, the the baddie is defeated, the good guy wins in the end. We like those fantasies of, Mm. of bad guys losing and good guys winning, because I think real life doesn't always give us that. Yeah, and we will just to um, promo the next episode. We will talk about the ending of Great Expectations, which is um, which uh, of which there are more than one, um, mm-hmm. and th- that are completely different. But I want to ask you two more questions about We Are All Monsters. Um, one is, what is the? I, I just found this fascinating, and I would like for you to explain it. The uh, Prodigy to Pathology thesis. So the Prodigy to Pathology thesis is um, it's an idea that is quite popular in monster theory. By monster theory, I mean academic interest in monsters and Mm. why monsters are so prevalent in our cultures, in our literatures, in our films. Um, It's become a real active area of academic interest. Um, Why monsters? And the Prodigy um, to Pathology thesis talks about the impact of science on monsters. Mm. So the idea of the prodigy is um, that this is something unusual, that it's something superficial, sorry, supernatural, where um, God is giving us a monster to tell us the things that are going to happen. That's the prodigy. It is a prodigy. It's telling us something that's going to happen. It's telling us something um, uh, that's going to be probably disastrous, something like um, a, a natural disaster, um, or a famine, or something like that. And the move to pathology describes how science comes along and, and tells us that uh, monsters, they're not prodigious, they don't tell us anything about the future, they're actually unusual, they're yeah. pathological, which is something that happens sort of at the end in, at the end of the 17th century and in the 18th century, but in the 19th century with new theories of mutation, um, and evolution, monsters uh, become symbols of nature being playful and nature trying different things. Hmm. So, a common term for a monster, which derives from Aristotle but is used throughout the 19th century, is lusus naturae, which basically means a sport of nature. Hmm. And lusus comes from ludic, you know, ludera, the, the Latin for play, suggesting that nature is playing. Nature is. Uh, sporting with form and trying different different kind different types so if nature gives us an extra finger or thumb that is nature going oh i wonder if that will make this species stronger Hmm. um if if it does we'll hang on to it and we'll inherit it if it's not it'll just die out it was Hmm. just a play it was a little um, playful moment but we move in the 19th century away from pathology Actually, we move away from the idea that monsters' differences in forms, different or structural peculiarities, are not pathological. They're actually normal by nature's standards. Wow, that's fascinating. And I love that in academia, there is now a branch called monster theory. Um, and you're, you're a monster. Is, is it really? It's huge and it's <laughs> incredibly popular. And there are enormous volume collections of um, monster theory where people have theorized about what monsters mean to us and there are different approaches to it there are um, the psychoanalytic approaches which suggest that monsters speak to a deep-seated 
sort of dark energy within us. Mm. Um, and then there's another idea which suggests, um, which comes from the idea of um, the French theorist Michel Foucault, who suggests that we create monsters in order to police ourselves by creating moments where things go wrong and, and uh, suggesting that there are monsters among us, it justifies, you know, it justifies the man, it justifies the patriarchy in mm. creating these complex systems of policing and trying to control genetics in particular. Hmm. And then, you know, there is there is my theory, which suggests actually it's neither of those negative things, but is actually an idea of nature at its most fertile. Yeah, well, I guess in the in the example you just gave, uh, I mean, the need for police, we're thinking about monsters in a, I mean, I'm thinking about monsters in a law and order sort of way where, mm. you know, we have deviant humans who are not necessarily... Mm -hmm deviant physically but are deviant psychologically and that's why we need police um but they're absolutely related that's hmm. the thing that in going back to the 19th century or, or actually in our own time there is a deep-seated belief that those who were structurally different people hmm. who have a difference in their mentality uh, sorry in their bodies uh, also believe to have a difference in their mentality hmm. and so it, it definitely was thought that people with singularities, people who are different, were more likely to do criminal acts. And so policing bodies was also about policing minds. There was hmm. no differentiation. What do you make of the late 20th century to contemporary trend of uh, writing stories from the point of view of traditional monsters? I'm thinking of Grendel by Jostin Gardner. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you could give endless examples. Fascinating. A really good one is Perfume, um, Patrick Suskind, which was made mm. into a movie featuring Dustin Hoffman. Mm. But it's it's a great movie, but it's based on a great novel where the story is told from the perspective of a serial killer mm. who is obsessed with perfume and the smell of um, the women who he kills. It's very interesting when you tell a story from the perspective of someone like that, you inevitably make them relatable. Mm. You inevitably make them um, empathetic. And a lot of people see this as difficult because um, it makes us empathize uh, with people who we really shouldn't be empathizing with. But it's a tradition that goes back, I think, to Frankenstein, mm. um, the novel in which the great central part is told by the monster himself. And he tells us about how he came to be, how his mind developed, how he learns to speak. And we begin to feel some sympathy for him. We begin to understand where his his active, you know, his actions come from, monstrous though they are. We begin to understand them. And I think this is crucial, actually. We, yes, society creates these monsters, but they're the same species as us. We need mm. to know where they come from. We need to know how they happen. We need to know what it is that creates them. And if telling their story from their point of view gives us insights into that, we can only benefit from that. Before we move on to Dickens, can you tell us a little bit about Lucas Mallet? Am I pronouncing the um, Mallet. Mallet? Lucas Mallet. And, I, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just give away, am I pronouncing her name correctly? Which is already kind of strange. <laughs> exactly, yes. yes. So Lucas Mallet is an extraordinary woman. She's the daughter of Charles Kingsley, 
so I should say actually Lucas Mallet is her pseudonym it's the name she writes her novels under it's a male pseudonym her real name is Mary Kingsley St Ledger or um, she changes her name throughout her life she's it's one of the extraordinary things about her so she's very often difficult to pin down because she she changes her identity she has very different ways of writing and different people that she moves around with but she is the daughter of Charles Kingsley who's a, uh, a friend of Charles Darwin and a lot of the key figures of high Victorian culture hmm. um, but she's writing towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century um, she's gay she uh, marries but uh, is obviously quite unhappy in her marriage so she then becomes the partner of an opera singer and writes these extraordinary narratives which are incredibly progressive they're very much of their period in that they're looking towards modernism but they introduce us a character called Sir Richard Calmady who is the subject of her best known novel um, who is a man in the story who is born with very short legs his um, feet appear just after his knees so he mm. doesn't have lower legs today we would call it focomelia syndrome but the novel is then a very careful unpicking of different reactions to that difference but also the characters reactions to that difference the way in which he interprets his difference and the way in which it it shapes and misshapes his identity. So she's a very interesting, and very much inspired by people like Zola in France and the Russian realist. She very much sees herself writing in a very naturalist, very realistic style, which is drawing on the science of the 19th century, mm. which is why I, why I was interested in her in We Are All Monsters, because I think she's a unique voice in the 19th century, but she's a more important voice than she's been given credit for. Yeah, I, I mean, I got that from your book. I'd never heard of her before. And uh, it's, you know, I think what you look for in nonfiction is, wow, I should have known that. I should have known about this person. I really, this is, this person was clearly important and I had never heard of them. So um, uh, it was, uh, that was great. I, I don't, was that the final chapters? I think that was the penultimate chapter, but um, really fascinating stuff. So we're going to go on and I, you know, that uh, syndrome that you just described, I think I must have read this in your book that that describes a Dickens character from Oliver Twist, right? Who, uh, a woman, I think you described her in your book, who was who uh, Dickens described in such a uh, in such opprobrious language that yeah, the real life person filed a suit against him. Yeah, yeah. This is Miss Moucher, who is um, she's in David Copperfield, so she is a dwarf. Um, she's described as a dwarf, mm -hmm. and um, and I've checked on this, and um, the Understanding Dwarfism Project online, um, it's a great resource, it tells us that dwarfism is a politically acceptable, and the word dwarf is the accepted term with people of the condition. Mm -hmm. um, so she is described as a dwarf, she's three foot high in the novel, and when she's introduced, she comes in She's a very extraordinary character, but inhabiting this very ordinary space. But she becomes responsible for the downfall of one of the central female characters, little Emily. Mm. She leads little Emily astray and makes her become that 
you know, that great figure of blame in the 19th century, the fallen woman, mm. the woman who has sex outside of marriage. And the real woman upon which this was based is a woman called Jane Seymour, and she lived close to Dickens. And she was reading David Copperfield and recognised herself mm. in the story. And she got in touch with her lawyer and threatened to sue Dickens. And she had every right to do so because he was making very simple and very problematic, I think, links between a physical difference and villainy. Mm. And the 19th century was actually showing us ways in which these links were problematic and that they weren't really acceptable. So Dickens saw the error of his ways, and when he reintroduces the character later on, he gives her this wonderful speech where she says to David, take my advice and don't judge people on their appearances. Mm. You know, just because I'm three foot something, don't assume I'm unusual or problematic um, in my personality. And it's a great moment where Dickens is obviously um, aiming to avoid a suit, obviously, but at the same time, really reflecting on his on the slight of the shorthand he'd used previously, which was very problematic. And we end up with this really, I think, quite sensitive and quite moving moment where a character with a structural peculiarity says, it doesn't make me a monster. It doesn't make me unusual. I, I, I'm just like you. That's fascinating. We're going to come back uh, next week with Professor Mangum. And we're going to talk more about some peculiar characters in Dickens. Mm -hmm. It will be it won't be David Copperfield. It will be Great Expectations. Uh, so we'll see you next week. The Book Society podcast is brought to you by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Chris Peters. We do new episodes on Fridays. We have a lot of episodes. You can listen to some back catalog. If you like the show, please give it a review. You can review it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Takes a few seconds. Helps out the show. Helps other people find it. And we really appreciate it. All right. See you next week. Much inspired by Hollywood B-movies. <laughs> Here in Hollywood, we just call them movies. Just movies. You know, um... <laughs>